Good morning. Welcome to church. Well, let's prepare our hearts for the rest of the service through spiritual preparation. 1 John 1 9 reminds us to confess our sins, and when we do, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's pause for a moment of silence so that we can recover the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit if we need to, and then I'll open with prayer. Let us pray. Father, thank you as always for giving us this opportunity to assemble together as saints. Pray now that the rest of this service would be honoring and glorifying to Thee, because You alone are worthy. We ask and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of verses before we start. As you know, the Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he does not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But as many as received him, to them he gave them the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved for by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. As we trek through our basic series, I want to kind of pull it all together by, first of all, reminding you all that the reason why we're going through this is so that we can see, at least in this increment, the importance of discipleship. Okay, so we've been combing through discipleship or phase two. And I know that there's a lot of notes here, and yet uh, today, I'm hoping that in the end, you're going to see how Jesus was able to accomplish discipleship and what he did as far as his interaction with individuals and the impact he left when dealing with others. So we're going to see that in just a moment, so I want to just look at Luke 14:31 one more time. Actually, I'm going to take it here so that we get the full context, so that we can feel or sense the force of the words of Christ. Taken from Luke 14, 27 to 29, it says the following, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid down the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him. Kind of reminds me of an example in Irvine. There was a Irvine has a particular style of housings, homes. And there was one home in the very corner that was looking it was built like a castle. And all the other houses around it were made out of wood. And it had the similar rooftop and um, same material, except for this one home in the corner. It was The owner used bricks. And it looked like a castle from the 1800s. So it really looked nice. The problem was is that after several years... It just sat there. It never got finished. And so the person moved and the house was never completed. 
And word has it is that it became a haunted house. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I would take my kids there every so often and we look at the, we would pass by the house and it's still there. It's still erected, not finished. And so it kind of reminded me of this passage here where it says if you're going to build a tower, if you're going to build some kind of structure, don't you first sit down and count the cost. And so this guy here obviously did not consider everything that was needed to finish the house. And so it just sat there and he wound up leaving. He never finished the house. So and in conclusion, it says the author says here, or Jesus said, and all who see it begin to mock him. So I get that sense that, you know, when you as a disciple, if you're going to follow him, you really have to sit down and count the cost. It's not something that's just um, to be taken lightly. And in fact, it's amplified now in this verse. And this verse is where I want us to really zoom in on one last time and then that's it. We're going to look at the style of Jesus after this. But again, I'm, I'm um, wanting you to see the cost involved in getting this done. whoever does not bear his cross, let's see, verse 31 is what I want us to see. Right here. So you go from a, a house builder or a tower builder and now a king going to war. So now this is warfare. Look at the shift here. Discipleship is like a king who is going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he has or whether he's able with 10,000 to meet who comes against him with 20,000. So the idea here is that as a king, he has to sit there and calculate whether or not he can take on the guy with the, his opponent with 20,000 when he himself only has 10,000. And so again, you get again you get this sense of sitting down and counting the cost. What's the cost involved here? What do you get out of this? Fourteen thirty-one. What could be lost here? Lives. Okay. So he's saying, okay, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, you really have to sit, think this through, because it's a war. There are two kings here. The Lord Jesus Christ and Satan. And so you get this sense where you have to sit down and think it through. Remember the previous uh, passages we've looked at together. Whoever loves mother, father, son, daughter before me, above me, is not worthy of my disciple, right? So you go from relationships to building towers and now going to war. So if the king with the smaller army thinks that he could not face the one with the greater army, he would send a delegation. You get that here. 32 and 33. So, Or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, cannot be my what? 
Again, it's this idea of disciple. Do you see that? You can't be my disciple if you're not going to sit down first and count the cost. It's like a person building a tower, building a home, and a guy going out for war. Whoever does not forsake all cannot be my disciple. Now, here's what's interesting. Look at verse 34 and 35. This we did not cover yet. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? If it neither it is neither fit for the land nor the dunghill, that's manure. But men throw it out, and he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's the idea of look, if you've got if you're paying attention, if you're listening, pay close attention. The salt starts off as being good, but if it's lost its flavor, how shall it be salty again? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out, and he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So the idea here from these passages is that it's a, it's a serious, calculated decision that we need to make to surrender all that you are and all that you have for Christ. So one who is willing to give up possessions and one who is willing to follow Christ by putting him first above all, no matter what the sacrifice. So regarding salt, I want to look at uh, 34 and 35 one last time because I think it, it kind of ties it all together. He's basically saying... It re- this salt refers to a believer who in the end refuses to be a disciple. And if we fail to commit, we become good for nothing. That's pretty harsh. Like salt that is no longer salty, it becomes useless. It's unavailable. It's, it's good for nothing. That's the sense that we see here. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, it's good for nothing. It's not fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out because it's no longer good. So likewise, discipleship is if we fail to commit, we're good for nothing. Like salt that that has lost its flavor. So now, um, I want us to examine the approach of Jesus Christ himself. There's a time in the Gospel accounts where he actually evangelizes. And we're going to look at several verses. We're not going to look at each verse. But I think it's worth looking at since we're on the subject of discipleship. This is taken from John chapter 4. And I'm sure you're familiar with it, but I'm highlighting certain words here to amplify what I'm trying to get us to see. In verse 4 it says, But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, 
sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour, which is about noontime. And so you get this, you can see here just that he needed to go through Samaria and we're going to discover that because Jesus being the God-man knew that there was a person there who needed to hear about this living water. So I want us to see the, the strategy of Jesus himself. He knew something needed to be done. He needed to meet someone. And so he made it a point to go there. He needed to go there, verse 4 says to go through Samaria. So, in verse 6, we find out that uh, Jesus was tired. He was wearied from his journey. So, he sat by the well, and it was about six, the sixth hour, 12 p.m. Verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So it's not unusual that Jesus would ask a woman for a drink. But I think we miss this sometimes. What else did he do here that was rather peculiar? What did the woman use to get water? You don't get it in this section of the word, but if you scroll down and you look later on, she uses a bucket, right? I think it's in verse 29. Let me just see if, if my memory serves me correctly. Is it 29? No? Oh, 28. Okay, I'm off one, so I'm still saved. So, 28. Now, why is this important? You're probably asking. She had a water pot. Well, she went to get water for herself. So, Jesus said, give me a what? So, that's like me going up to Hal and saying, Hal, can I have a drink? And I take his bottle. Would you guys think that would be unusual for me to... Why? Germs. Hal's looking at me like, please don't drink that water. <laughs> it would be rather odd, wouldn't it? To just, for me to pick up his bottle and drink it. It's his. But look at the text. What does it say? The woman of Samaria came to draw water. And at this time, in the heat of the day, Uh, If you know the story, it's because she had a bad reputation. She was trying to avoid people. Okay, We're going to see later on that Jesus was able to get her to admit to something. But he doesn't beat her up. But I want you to see here that we 
I haven't seen any commentary point this out, but Jesus said to her as she's drawing the water, give me a drink. So basically, he was going to use her uh, bucket to drink. Notice verse 8. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So I would take that to mean that the disciples had uh, the bucket with them because travelers usually carried a skin bucket for drawing water and we usually call those uh, canteens, right? So they would be the ones to have it but the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So they had what was required to fetch water because they left to get food. So now he's left by himself and he's tired, recall. And he said to her, would you give me a drink? And this woman was kind of shocked and she said, well, you're a Samaritan. We're not even supposed to be, uh, you're a Jew. We're not supposed to be talking. He says, um, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans were half-breeds intermixed with Jews. And uh, you'll notice that the comment concerning de- no dealings with Samaritans, though true because of the Jewish tradition, Jesus just flat out ignored it. He didn't even address it. She said, well, you being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We're not even supposed to be found talking you're talking to me. Two problems here. One, she's a Samaritan. Two, she's a woman. At this time, it was a big no-no. You're not supposed to be talking to women when you're by yourself like this. But did that bother Jesus? No. Because he had the objective of talking to her. Remember, he needed to go to Samaria. Here's the reason why we're starting to see when we unpack this. His goal was to meet this woman who's at the well. And notice, he carefully asked for help. Give me a drink. Can I borrow your bucket? I don't have anything to get the water. He's initiating the conversation. He strikes up the conversation. Even though he knows she probably would feel a little uncomfortable because she's Samaritan and he's a Jew. But did that stop him? Not even. Did that even stop him because he was a man and she's a woman? Oh, that's a, no, no, you're not supposed to talk to the opposite sex. He didn't care. Look closely. She's the one startled. So, the strategy of Jesus was to talk to the person. Talk kindly to her. Extend grace. Even though she was a Samaritan, he said, could you help me? You know, there's something about asking for help that is, it, help, it, it encourages a person to step in to help. Could you help me with directions? I'm kind of lost. Um, I'm trying to get to Fort Belvoir. Oh, just go down here. 
People have a tendency by nature to be willing to help if you ask. That's what he does here. But what makes it interesting is two things, two strikes against her is that she's a woman, first of all. Not saying that women are bad, but in the culture, in the time, that's a big no-no. But that he didn't care about that. And we're going to see later on his disciples were shocked. But two strikes. One, she's a woman and she's a Samaritan. But Jesus, being the God-man, being the example or the prototype for us, shows us how to interact with others. Initiate the conversation. Even if it's an awkward situation. Because that's exactly what he did here. He said, could you help me? Can I drink from your bucket? Now, I'm supplying the word bucket here, but we know from 28 that she had a bucket and he didn't have anything. We're going to see in just a moment. He didn't even have anything to fetch water, according to the woman. So he's initiating this conversation. He's striking up a conversation. Now, you're, you're asking me, well, what's the big deal? Just go on with the, the rest of the passage. I want us to see how Jesus interacted with others because if we're calling ourselves disciples of Christ, followers of Christ, it's very important for us to see how he did what he did. And then in the end, to see the full impact of what little steps like this accomplished. Because you're going to see in the end, it so impacted more than this woman that it's very important for us to see how we can emulate him. Very, very key. Very, very important. So not only did he ask uh, the woman for a drink, but he was asking to use her water pot. That's why I I was trying to use um, Hal's water bottle to give you the impact visually that it would be rather odd for me to just drink from his cup or his bottle. Because as... Laura said, germs. Can you imagine just... Can I have a sip? Oh, thank you. Jesus basically borrowed her bucket, was asking to drink from his bucket. Give me a drink. I want you to see what's there. That's what's there, but you, you can't see it unless you visually put it in your mind's eye. And so I'm helping you see it because you don't hear, you don't see the word bucket, but we're going to see, we saw in verse 28 that she had a bucket. His disciples had gone away into the city to what? Buy food. So then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You know that. Notice what happens next. Jesus answered and said to her, Ah, if you knew the gift of God. Verse 10. And who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus now transitions from the subject of physical water to that of spiritual water. There's two waters here. Physical water and spiritual water. If you knew the gift 
And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So this uh, if is a if you knew the gift of God, this is what's called a second class conditional sentence. So that's just a fancy way of saying another way of rendering this sentence here is if you knew the gift of God, but you don't. If you did, you would have asked, but you don't know. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So that piques her curiosity. And so she says, well, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to what? To draw with. You're now talking about this living water. You yourself need help. You don't have anything to draw from. Or to draw with. And not only that, the well is what? Deep. Where then do you get that living water? You, you notice he's still, he, he's still talking to her. He's talking to this woman. And remember, in her, in her mind, she's saying, I can't believe he's talking to me because I'm a Samaritan. What are people going to say if they see us talking because he's a guy and I'm a woman? Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well, that this well right here, and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? So she suspects that this is Exactly what he's claiming. You don't even have anything to draw with and the well is deep. Jacob gave us a well which 2,000 years later still is providing good water. So she's wondering how could Jesus do better from a well that would never run out. See, notice what she's saying here. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Jesus was sometimes in the gospel accounts understood as claiming to be greater than the patriarchs of Israel. Take, for example, in um, John 8.53. Let's turn there just for a moment. You'll recall... The Jews said to him, now we know that you are a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets and you say if anyone keeps my word he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets who are dead? Who do you make yourself to be? So sometimes he's misunderstood as claiming to be greater than the patriarchs. As we, we can see in John 8 and back to here in John 4, are you greater than our father, Jacob? Jesus answered and said to her, still talking, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Verse 13. But... Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into what? 
everlasting life. So the contrast of drinking in verse 13 of that and that of verse 14 is seen with the word drinks. Whoever drinks, verse 13, whoever drinks, verse 14. So there's the water that comes from the well and there's the water that comes from Jesus. The water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now what's commonly taught is that the water that Jesus gives is everlasting life. But look closely, I purposely highlighted the word into in orange. Living water is not eternal life itself. The living water springs up into everlasting life. Did you see that? The living water isn't everlasting life. The living water will spring up into everlasting life. When you look closely here in verse 13. So now, she's interested. She's engaged. He's engaged with her in this conversation. Now the woman said, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. So is she sold on the living water now? And if so, what for? Why does she want the living water? Still thinking of physical water. Yeah. Give me this water so I won't thirst anymore. But notice the second portion of verse 15. 15b. Nor come here to draw. So she's still thinking material and she's still self-centered. If Jesus could help her avoid the hot journey to the well, she'd be satisfied. The words, nor come here to draw, indicate that relief from the effort of the journey is her main concern here. Give me this water so that I won't thirst anymore, nor have to come here anymore. Because I'm tired, I have kids, I have a lot of responsibilities, I have to do the laundry. I don't want to come back and forth here over and over again. Can you give me that living water? So she is at least interested because she asked, give me this water. So what do you think Jesus is going to do next? He's going to continue to talk to her. I want you to see the flow. Jesus is talking to her. And all this time, she's already feeling a little uncomfortable because of the, the racial differences. Notice what it says in 16. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman said, The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have, said, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have five. You have had five. And the one whom you now have is not even your husband. In that you spoke truly. So what does he ask her to do? 
What's his request? Go call your husband. So there's a there's a starting point right here. This is what gets her to open up and to be honest. Go call your husband. He initiates a conversation that triggers a response where she opens up and she has the opportunity to be honest while at the same time being vulnerable. Look at this. I don't have a husband. Did she speak? Did she tell the truth? Who's the guy she's with right now? They're just together. Verse 18. You have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. So you're staying with this guy, but he's not your husband. So, but I want you to see something here. First of all, what's the woman struggling with? Look at, look at, just looking at the text. Based on what Jesus said, he has his, he has the omniscience, we don't. But we see in verse 18, you have had five husbands. What's going on with the woman? What is she searching for? Security. What else? What does a woman, woman like? They want security and what? Love. She had five, five failed marriages. She was yearning for something. She wanted to be loved. And the one whom she's with now is not even your husband. You think she's vulnerable at this point? He has just opened up something very, very personal about this woman here. You know how it is when you, even in prayer requests, we don't like to tell all the details because it's personal, right? Here's a woman who has five failed marriages. She's embarrassed. Notice the progression here. She's a woman. She's a Samaritan. Now here's an unknown man speaking to her about her past with pinpoint accuracy. He says, go call your husband. And now she's vulnerable. She has to think for a moment, how am I going to answer this guy? I want this living water, but I have to be honest. I have no husband. Notice how Jesus responds. And I think we can learn from the Master himself. You have said well. You have said well, I have no husband. Look, I know you're uncomfortable right now. I know you're probably vulnerable and a little embarrassed. But I want you to know I'm affirming you. These are the buzzwords today, right? I'm affirming you. You have said well. You know what? Hey, I appreciate your honesty. You have said well. Not only that, You have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. How many times did he affirm her? Twice. Please notice that. You have said well, in that you spoke truly. Here's a person who is vibrating in her feet uncomfortable, doesn't even know this guy, and yet he's telling her about her past. 
And he says, he said to her, you have said well. You're honest. You spoke truly. This is the words of the master himself. You want to impact people? Your choice of words. You talk about doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Extending grace. This is extending grace twice right here. You have said well in that you spoke truly. There's the application of doctrine right there. That's grace. He spoke to her in a way that was encouraging her to be transparent and open about her past so that he can impact her life. Notice as it progresses. First of all, he was being properly social, proper socially for asking her for her husband's presence since extended conversation without him would be subject to question. But what's important to observe is how Jesus is strategically steering the conversation here so that he can lead her to the point of admitting her need. So again, I, point, I pointed out that twice now he affirms her, you have said, you have well said, you spoke truly. So after he says this to her, notice her response. Verse 19. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then he goes on to say, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. We're not going to go through the, the rest of that, but I want you to see that Jesus' words concerning her five husbands as a... Uh, we saw in the previous verse, causes her to realize that he's no ordinary person, but is in fact a prophet, or that's what she thought. While a prophet was one who proclaimed a message that was divine in its source, there was also the notion that a prophet had special insight into one's personal condition. And for that, I'd like us to look at Luke chapter 7. just so that we can see how in a different context um, how what a prophet is perceived to have. Look at verse... Uh, I'm going to read 36 all the way down to 39 and then I'll flash 39 up here to give you the verse itself. 36 says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, referring to Jesus. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. Verse 38. And stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what a manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. 
So you see here in verse 39, it's here on the screen. Again, prophets are have been known to have this sense of uh, one's personal condition or insight. Notice what Luke 7.39 says. The Pharisee said, if he were a prophet, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So you get that from 39. That the notion is that if he were a prophet, according to this Pharisee here, but we know that he's greater than a prophet, that he would know who is touching her and it's just, she's a sinner, in other words. Continuing the flow, now in verse 25, remember he, she had just said, um, I perceive that you're a prophet, in verse 19. We're now going to jump to 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will, he will tell us all things. And here's Jesus' opportunity. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. So she now wonders if he is the Messiah. He has told her some personal details of her life. No stranger could have known this. And yet he had spoken like no one else. So I want to look what happens next. We're going to jump down to 27. And at this point, his disciples came. Aha. Uh oh. He's caught. And they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the social custom of the day was forbade a Jewish man to speak with a woman, especially a Samaritan woman in public. So notice, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. And who was it that marveled? His elite, his disciples. Remember, they went to get food. They came back, verse 27. At this point, his disciples came back and they said, they marveled, they were surprised, in other words, that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They didn't ask Jesus about it for they knew that he had good reasons for everything he does. So they just kept it to themselves. But they were surprised. So you can see the impact that he gave his disciples. In other words, look. This is what it's like to lead people to Christ. This is what it's like to impact people. Doesn't matter if they're a woman. Doesn't matter if, you're in, in a, if they're a Samaritan. Talk to them. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. His disciples were surprised. You're not supposed to be doing that. And we said, well, that's what you think. That's how it's done. You go and talk to the people out there. Watch what happens next. It's amazing. The woman left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? 
Now, who's doing the evangelizing now? The woman. Jesus spent time with this woman. All he did was talk to her. Look at what happened when he spent time with this woman. Now she becomes the evangelist. The woman left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. She's exaggerating a little bit here. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. We should keep in mind that the woman had come to the well to draw water. Jesus made an impact on her. If she had not filled it, it, her excitement is emphasized all the more. So she went there to fill her water pot. But what happened to her water pot? She left it there. And what did she do? When she left it there, she went to the city and said, Come see a man who told me all things. She could not wait to tell the people of the city who she had met. Something worth pointing out. The Lord set aside his need for a drink of water. And the woman set aside her purpose in coming to the well. That is impact. The woman came there to get water. Jesus came there to get water. He used the situation, turned it around, impacted her with words. And now she's going out and doing the invitation to National Capital. He talks to her and she says, hey, come here. You got to come here. This is a great place. You got to meet this man, Jesus. He told me all things. Well, let's see the results. Look at the impact of this one woman. Many of the Samaritans of that city, what? Believed in him. Because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. Hey, stay with me. And he stayed there how long? All of a sudden he's welcome now. And many more believed because of what? His own words. Then they said to the woman, that they referring to the many Samaritans, the people of that city, verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city. Then, 42, they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Wow. Impact. That is impact. So let's tie it together. What did Jesus do? What can we learn from the example of Christ? What did he do? How did it start? 
He needed to go to Samaria. Right? He knew what he needed to do. He had an objective in mind. He went. He needed to go. So he went. In fact, he made the sacrifice so much so that we're told that he wearied. He was weary, right? That shows the fact that he was 100% God and 100% what? Man. His humanity was tired. He was weary. So he went there and he initiated what? Conversation. Oh, but you're not supposed to talk to them. They're they're Samaritans. I mean, isn't what are we here? What are we seeing today? All this racial racism and all this racial injustice. Jesus broke those barriers. He went and talked to this person. He didn't care. The Jews did. They didn't have any dealings with Samaritans. But what did Jesus do? Hey, follow my lead. Disciples, follow my lead. He came. They came back and saw him doing what. He, they thought he was not supposed to do, which was talking with the woman. But he didn't care. Why? Because he had an objective. And what's the objective? To give her living water, which will bubble up into everlasting life. What was that living water? The truth about him, that he was the Messiah. I am he. The one you speak to am he. It is I. And then what she what did she do? Even though she was embarrassed and vulnerable, yes, I had five failed marriages and a guy I'm living with is not even my husband, but Jesus said, you've said well. You've spoken well. He affirms her twice. Grace in action. And because he spent time with this woman, she goes all out and invites numerous or many people to meet him for themselves. All because she spent he spent time with her. He didn't embarrass her. Could he have embarrassed her? Hey, you're a sinner living in you're living in sin. You're not supposed to be living with him. The guy you're with's not even your husband. He could have embarrassed her. Turn or burn. Some churches teach that. You don't turn from your sins, you'll burn in hell. That's not grace. What did he do? You have said well. You are right. He didn't lie. He was trying to draw it out from her so that she'll be interested in what he has to offer. That's impact. If you follow his approach. Talk gracefully. Use words that will be... Steer it in such a way that you could lead it out. I'm reminded of a situation, and I'm sure you've had situations similar to this. I know when I talk to Pastor Dan, we've had, he talks about his uh, example in the hospital. But I uh, was in flying back from California when I went there earlier this year. I was seated with a girl who was a nurse wearing her mask and uh, very concerned about COVID. And so I struck up a conversation. I said, uh, 
what is it that you do for a living? And she said, well, I'm, I'm a nurse. And I said, oh, wow. So what's it like with uh, the hospitals these days? It must be impacted with the uh, COVID stuff in the hospital. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. And so I, I steered the conversation. I said, do you think there will ever be a time where COVID will subside? And I, said, I hope so. And I said, are you afraid of the, getting the COVID? She said, well, yeah, could die. I'm a nurse. I see it all the time. I said, oh, yeah. I had COVID myself at one time earlier this year, but uh, I was able to overcome it, you know, with, uh, did the, pro- the proper things. I didn't get the vaccine. And she said, you didn't? Why not? I said, well, I just, I know someone's taking care of me. Bam. Transition. Someone is taking care of me. What, what do you mean someone's taking care of you? I said, I have someone who's watching over me. I said, I, I'm a believer. And I believe that God is going to, he, ha- he knows the day and the hour when it's time for me to go home. I said, I'm not saying that it's not appropriate to be careful and cautious when in public, but I'm not like many people who are afraid of the COVID because we're told to be anxious for nothing. So I started to share with her. And I ultimately shared the gospel with her. I said, you know, you don't have to be afraid of anything because in the end, it's really God who says when your last breath is. I said, do you know Jesus Christ as your... Lord and Savior? And she said, no, I've gone to church before. And I said, well, it's simple. You know, he says, for God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And I opened up my phone and showed her the verse and inserted her name. I don't recall her name at the moment. But then she, I said, you know, he's done many things and John itself, the Gospel of John, we don't have time right now, but uh, he's done eight signs in John. They're miraculous signs and they're to add credibility to this person named Jesus Christ. I said, if you would believe in him right now, he promises you everlasting life. So should something happen to you, if you contract COVID as a nurse, you could know without a shadow of a doubt that the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Would you like to know that? She said, yeah, that'd be wonderful. I just believe in Jesus. She said, I do. I said, well, great, congratulations. He promises everlasting life. That's impact. That's weaving a conversation and strategically steering the conversation in such a way that you can lead them to other kernels of truth that would give you a door into sharing. What do you do on the weekends? Oh, I go golfing. Oh, you do? And then you keep talking. Oh, that's great. Uh, I, what do you do on the weekends? Oh, I'm glad you asked. I, I, I give messages. I give uh, wisdom coming from the old book. What are you talking about? Uh, scripture. I've had different scenarios and different situations where I would steer the conversation like Christ so that I can interact with the person and eventually get them to acquiesce to Jesus Christ. That's what we saw here. And I hope that in closing that you would see the Master himself made the time, took the time, and initiated the conversation. And if he, if we would just spend time with individuals, we could impact them and we would never know what the end result would be. 
This woman was so impacted by the time Jesus spent with her that she went and told the entire city, Springfield, come here and hear the truth. It's being taught. You got to come here. Can we do that? We certainly can. So that's my encouragement to you. That's my challenge. Let's make 2023 2023 the best year. Let's talk to people. We're talking about discipleship. We're talking about counting the cost. Well, we saw putting Christ first before family, before all other relationships, before careers. Now, it doesn't mean you can't work. It doesn't mean you can't love your family. Of course you do. But it's the priority structure, God first, above all things. And when you do, he's going to pull it all together. And we'll see later on of what will happen as we commit to putting him first. Counting the cost, it's not easy. Everybody here is a believer in Christ. If you're online, you're a believer in Christ, that's it. Good. You're saved. Now what? The next step is to follow Christ. Be a disciple. Go out there and make disciples of all nations, of all people. Teaching them the things that I taught you. Christ first above all. And when you do, we'll have a radically transformed community, county, city, state, and eventually world. Because it starts with you and me. It starts with one person. Me. You. The person next to you. And if we would pull together and start to talk to others, we can certainly see similar results as the woman at the well. So let me close in a word of prayer and then I'll ask Hal to come up. Father, thank you as always for giving us this opportunity to examine your word. And I know, Father, that sometimes we're flooded with information in the past few months about all these charts on discipleship and the difference between a disciple and salvation. And I think there's a place for that. But, Father, there's nothing better than looking at your word and seeing how your son was able to impact this one woman by carefully talking to her and choosing choice words that would fully impact her and cause her to be open and transparent and to be vulnerable and honest so that she would receive the living water that would come from your son. And if that's what a disciple is all about, if that's what we ought to do as well, well, I hope and trust that every one of us here were able to pick up a kernel of truth based on the actions as displayed by your son. How he made it a point to go to a particular area because he needed to. How he was able to interact with the woman and even to ask to drink from the same bucket that she brought herself. And to cause her to say, well, how can you get this living water? You don't have anything to draw from yourself. All these details are loaded with gems, spiritual truth, where the Holy Spirit can take that and sink it into the person's soul to cause them to want to desire more about what it is that we have to offer as far as your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that every one of us would learn these truths and not just be hearers of the truth but doers and to be followers of your your son Jesus Christ because I think that's 
what the priority is in the phase two of salvation, discipleship, following Christ. Thank you for everyone here, and I do believe everyone here is fully committed to you, but sometimes we just need to be nudged just a little bit and reminded by looking and reflecting on what your son personally had done, and maybe we can learn from him, and I'm certainly sure we can, making adjustments where necessary, like taking the time to talk to someone and making sure that our words are encouraging and affirming, which will bring about a result. And so we thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And we ask and pray all of these things through Christ's matchless name in which we pray. Amen.